0: All those who are holding tickets outside, we're getting as fast as they can. I'm speaking out to you, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside. We seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon.
1: Welcome back to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about West Side Story, the 1961 Best Picture winner. But we want to start off this episode talking about Hollywood's original thought problem, and that is remakes. And the fact that Hollywood loves to remake, they love to take something old and just make it new, put the new technology, new spins and bells and whistles on it to make it seem like that it's original, to make it seem like that it's something new and extravagant and fun to go to the movie theaters. And it's great to go to the movie theaters, but that still leaves this big void of original ideas, original thought, original concepts. And we keep on, and especially in today's world, we keep on rehashing the same stories over and over again and west side story is kind of the perfect example of the same story being remade over and over and over again so first off the 1961 movie is a remake of a broadway musical that is adapted from a shakespeare play that is also adapted from an italian poem and that 1961 movie that was adapted on on all those things was then remade last year 2021 by Steven Spielberg for the 2021 version of West Side Story. And as fun and as much as Quentin Tarantino loved that West Side Story, there is still an overall, to me, issue with the fact that Hollywood can't seem to get out of its own way and wants to just rehash and remake everything because they don't want to try something new. At least that's how I perceive it. So, John, I kind of just want to open up the floor first on that idea of Hollywood's problem with not, coming out with new ideas, new, I was about to say products, but new films. Films are products, though, and there is a business side to it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's really tricky. I feel like well, we'll definitely get into it with the West Side Story, but I feel like it's a perfect film, really, to remake. Not really in terms of marketing. I think when the film came out, we saw how kind of poorly it performed. I mean, we're talking about a 60-year-old musical. Not even my parents went to go see the movie, which I think says a lot, which, I mean, it's older than my father, I think. So it, it just clearly struggled. It felt like it was something that Spielberg personally wanted to do, and that's probably why it happened. But to get into the reasons of why I think it was remade, I don't I don't really know. I think from a personal point of view, I think you could see just Spielberg lug the movie. And I think really the biggest reason West Side Story deserved to be remade was specifically when it comes to race. And I think we'll definitely get to that and in, in the way the new film represents uh, Puerto Ricans and people of Latin culture. But In terms of remakes in general, I mean, it is, it is crazy. It is a problem. I mean, I think this came up when we recently saw that there is going to be a remake of a Best Picture winner, third Best Picture winner, all quite on the Western front. And I saw that Netflix is making it. I think it's German made now. So it's cool to see different point of views and perspectives. I think people don't really think about like these Oscar Academy films when they think of remakes. I think it's. More so, they think of big brands, IPs, they think of these big characters that kind of dominate what pop culture is now in film. So it's it's odd to look at a six-year-old musical and say, we should remake that. One, musicals aren't really that popular anymore. It's kind of odd to kind of push a musical in general, especially a huge musical like this and an iconic musical, especially for the time even winning the Best Picture Award. So... There's definitely certain reasons. I think I always think of technically, like how can you improve something on a technical point of view. Uh, we recently talked about Ben Hur, which obviously was remade as well, and we didn't go too much into that remake. But that certainly is like one of the biggest reasons I could think of. You know, you want to technically improve something, you want it to uh, be bigger in a lot of different ways. But yeah, Ben, why do you think uh, we're kind of stuck here? I, I think it's it also has to do with just being. We're, we're not running out of stories, but stories are, are very cyclical and a lot of stories are really similar. But why do you think that uh, Hollywood loves their remakes? They love their remakes because to me, it's just the idea that it, it's
1: comforting. It, like people find comfort in the same things and happening over and over again. And I, West Side Story is, uh, you know, it's so easy, I think, to remake it because it's such an iconic musical. And, and one of the things that I realized upon watching it this time around. Because uh, I have seen West Side Story, not just in this movie in the 2021, but I saw it on Broadway. My high school, the senior year was was West Side Story, and I worked on the stage crew for that, so I saw that performance countless times while rehearsing it. So I, I feel and there's a lot of also personal things. We'll we'll get into that. Uh, with, you know, with my family and how they valued it, but the move mu- like the musical is so popular and so big. And, and what I found when watching this time around. That it became accessible for everybody in the theaters in 1961. And like that must have been huge for someone in Chicago, let's say. Like they probably, they're not like not many people probably going to Broadway, but they know West Side Story. And so instead of maybe waiting for that to come to Chicago to a stage, that they were able to see it in the theater. So that was like a huge deal. And so why Hollywood is like, fascinated by like constantly remaking is because of again that comfort but also people are going to go out and flock to go see it so it's kind of this you know it is very cyclical and like we do there are a lot of stories do have the same themes and ideas and concepts but it gets masked by how creative you can be and so then when it comes to remakes it kind of feels like oh well you already had something to base your creativity on and I'm sure he'll come up throughout the discussion with Spielberg's version of West Side Story, but he kind of, like as great as Spielberg is, I'm not trying to take away from him, but isn't it kind of easy for them just to be like, oh, well, we can use not only the, not just the original music, the original score, the original performances of it on Broadway. We can use this film version. We can use later versions of the, of the play and the musical. So it's like you have a lot to kind of base it off of, which is why, it looked really great, and it was Spielberg as well, so you can, you gotta have to give credit where credits due but it's it's definitely this thing where I feel like when it comes to remakes, you can so easily look at the original and then base your whole entire idea and entire creative approach to it just by that,
2: yeah, you're absolutely right it's It's hard to give something full credit when it is a remake, and you have that like kind of foundation unless it really is so out there and kind of going beyond what the original like source material is. And the two movies are are very similar, and I think we'll get into which we prefer definitely throughout the, the podcast here, but it is an odd question because it's something that we're going to continue to see. I think there's going to be continually more remakes and remakes because it's easy to kind of sell something with a name that's recognizable. You know, marketing is kind of already there for you. Whether that is like a successful thing or not is, I think, up to certain brands, I mean, I think both this and Ben-Hur would be considered a bomb in terms of box office. So it's hard. I think there's a lot of expectations when you remake something, too, especially when you remake something that is known to be such a classic. Like That is putting like an insane amount of pressure on you. So on one hand, yeah, you do have that extra kind of cheat sheet. You have the reference of what to do, what not to do. But at the same time, it's also a lot of pressure on you to kind of make things different without making things too different. You know, there's a lot of baggage to come along with it. And as far as I'm concerned, as far as I remember, I should say, I don't think Spielberg's ever remade a film or really done anything like this. So it also could be, you know, an experiment for someone, someone who's been in the industry for 40 years at this point, someone who's just made almost every kind of film there is. And it is is probably like an experiment for him, much like uh, the psycho remake in the 90s was where it was shot for shot the same and i think there's something to that i think when you're big at spielberg you know you can get away with something like that but it's tricky
1: yeah it's so it's actually fascinating you brought up that psycho remake because because what gus van zandt basically did was he just went shot for shot and he his whole stance was that hitchcock nailed it so perfectly the first time around that i'm just recreating it and and like paying homage to it and and I feel like that's an interesting take on it because he's not changing anything besides just putting different characters and and putting it in color. It's the same exact movie, same exact like shot for shot, whereas Spielberg he he took some liberties, and I'm not going to say those are bad liberties, but he took like creative ideas and he expanded upon the story in different ways and which I think you know enhanced it and added color to it and added a whole different like aura to it, and that's what makes like west side story interesting because of how it has been remade and the use of you know the the shark speaking spanish in later adaptations of it tony's like depth and and his kind of his background was explored a little bit more in the spielberg version versus the uh, you know versus the 61 version so it's fascinating You brought up the idea of psycho but also when we're talking about remakes and and classics i get a little worried because i feel like i said this when the first when west side story came out last year i was like well now almost every best picture movie that ever won is like it's like completely open for everyone's remake so yeah they're gonna remake all quiet on the western front but then what's stopping them from doing like the sound of music what's stopping (laughs) oh that's coming that's gonna happen like exactly that like that's gonna be coming they're gonna you know they're definitely gonna want to they have remade the rocky well they've like added to the rocky movies but it's you know it's adding to this franchise i don't think they'll ever touch like the godfather would they touch would they touch on the waterfront like is like that a movie that if that got remade yeah. like i'm saying they're gonna remake the godfather too i guarantee oh you. if they but like <laughs> i don't know like that that's where I, that's where my line gets crossed and i'm okay with like the musicals getting remade but i really don't want the dramas to get remade because the drama like fuck if you read it all of it like you redo all about eve you take away so much of like how great you know betty davis's performances in it and all the nuances with that the best years of our lives you can't remake that how can you remake <laughs> that movie with like any logic and think it's gonna be great you know then you look at the shakespeare stuff on the other side and shakespeare you know uh, west side story obviously took from romeo and Juliet. And shakespeare has adapted his plays from tons of other stories but like that's kind of okay i feel like to touch because it's so old but i, I don't know i can go on and on and go through every single movie um and it, it's just this like very weird state that we are in hollywood because you're right we're gonna see a ton of remakes because everyone's excited for it i mean what was it, a few weeks ago we saw these rumors about wizard of oz getting remade yep. like why would you touch touch that like that's not <laughs> like what's the point you know you're going to base it off the original and and that's the other thing that you know these expectations of the remake compared to the original like it there's so much pressure and and not everyone's spielberg where it can like survive and, and it can really you know survive and thrive off of that i it just it, it's going to be a mess and and that's why it's this huge problem because very rarely nowadays does hollywood try anything new and a movie that i think was very original very new was like everything everywhere all at once like that like that's a new movie that feels very like oh my god like that i don't think that has been done before but it's based off the idea of just a mother and daughter having a rocky relationship and it's explored through multiverse and sci-fi and that and like so that's like a great approach
2: to it i'm trying to think of like other like new movies even in the Heights is a great example of it being a musical is being about New York City, being specifically about like a Latino community. Like it's so funny that these movies came out in the same year when one is like an original, which is definitely an homage to this film and probably to the original stage play, and that they both come out in the same year and one's like an original story, which does actually way better in terms of fine financials and in the box office than this remake did. So it is a weird, tricky kind of ground that we kind of were walking right now and I do agree with dramas it's it's weird it's it's kind of odd to kind of remake a drama that's so critically remembered but I think at the end of the day we have to just know that the original is always going to be there it's easy to say that too because a lot of people may never watch the original of these movies they'll just watch a remake but that I think that's my problem is that people are going to go they're not going to say oh
1: I'm going to watch the 1961 version they're going to say I'm going to watch the 2021 version of uh, West Side Story because it's newer it's flashier it has the better camera movements and and it you know it has Rachel Zegler in it and I was going to say Ansel angor but he's kind of uh <laughs> has his own issues which I don't know how they've survived with that but anyways <laughs> I want to end this cold open with just this quote from Jerome Robbins who was co-director of the West of uh, West Side Story and he was also a um director and one of the originators of the original musical So he said, West Side Story was a believable and touching work because of the special poetic conventions we evolved, conventions which were inherently theatrical. The problem is now to find a new set of conventions inherently cinematic, which will also convey the essence of a show whose essence is not in any of its separate elements, but in their organic unity. So I just want you to think about that, John, that quote, that idea of what Jerome Robbins, the original director choreographer of, West Side Story brought to the 1961 version. So let's wrap this all up, and let me ask you that age-old question, John. Is West Side Story worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1961?
2: West Side Story. Two youngsters from rival New York City gangs fall in love but tensions between their respective friends build towards tragedy. In New York City in
1: 1957, two teenage gangs compete for control on the Upper West Side. The Jets, a group of whites led by Riff, brawl with the Sharks, Puerto Ricans led by Bernardo. Lieutenant Shrank and Officer Krupke arrive and break it up. The Jets challenge
2: the Sharks to a rumble to be held after an upcoming dance. Riff wants his best friend Tony, the co-founder and former member of the Jets, to fight at the rumble. Riff invites Tony to the dance, but Tony says he senses something important is coming. Riff suggests it could happen at the dance. Tony finally agrees to go. Meanwhile, Bernardo's younger sister, Maria, tells her best friend and Bernardo's girlfriend, Anita, how excited she is about the dance. At the dance, the two gangs and their girls refuse to intermingle. Tony arrives, he and Maria fall in love instantly, but Bernardo angrily demands that Tony stay away from her. Riff proposes a midnight meeting with Bernardo at Doc's Drugstore to settle the rules for the Rumble. Maria is sent home. Anita argues that Bernardo is overprotective of Maria,
1: and they compare the advantages of Puerto Rico and the mainland United States. Tony sneaks onto Maria's fire escape, where they reaffirm their love. Krupke, who suspects the Jets are planning something, warns them not to cause trouble. The Sharks arrive, and the gangs agree to a showdown the following evening under the highway with a one-on-one fistfight. When Shrink arrives, the gang's fake friendship, Shrink orders the Sharks out and fails
2: to discover information about the fight. The next day at the Brado shop where they work, Anita accidentally tells Maria about the rumble. Tony arrives to see Maria. Anita shocked, Anita, shocked, warns them about the consequences if Bernardo learns about their relationship. Maria makes Tony to promise to prevent the rumble. Tony and Maria fantasize about their wedding. The gangs approach the area under the highway.
1: Tony arrives to stop the fight, but Bernardo antagonizes him. Unwilling to watch Tony be humiliated, Riff initiates a knife fight. Tony intervenes, leading to Bernardo stabbing and killing Riff. Tony kills Bernardo with Riff's knife and a melee ensues. Police silence Blair and everyone flees, leaving behind the dead bodies. Maria waits for Tony on the roof of her apartment building. Her fiance, Chino, in a rage engagement, arrives and tells her what happened. Tony arrives and asks for Maria's forgiveness. He plans to turn himself into the police. Maria is devastated but confirms
2: her love for Tony and asks him to stay. The Jets and their new leader, Ice, reassemble outside a garage and focus on reacting to the police. Anybody arrives and warns them that Chino is after Tony with a gun. Ice sends the Jets to warn Tony. A grieving Anita enters the apartment while Tony and Maria are in the bedroom. The lovers arrange to meet at docks, where they will pick up getaway money to elope. Anita spots Tony leaving through the window and criticizes Maria for the relationship with Bernardo's killer. But Maria convinces her to help them elope. Shrank arrives and questions Maria about the rumble. Maria sends Anita to tell Tony that Maria is detained from meeting him. When Anita reaches docks, the jets harass and even try to rape her. When Doc appears and intervenes,
1: Anita angrily lies, saying that Chino has killed Maria. Doc banishes the jets, gives Tony his getaway money, and delivers Anita's message. Tony, distraught, runs into the streets shouting for Chino to kill him too. In the playground next to Doc's, Tony spots Maria, and they run toward each other, only for Chino to shoot Tony. The gangs arrive to find Maria holding Tony, who dies, in her arms. Maria stops the gangs from fighting, takes the gun from Chino, and threatens to shoot everyone, blaming their hate for the deaths. Shrank, Krupke, and Doc arrive, and the
2: gangs form a funeral procession, with Maria following. The police arrest Chino and lead him away. West Side Story is directed by Jerome Robbins and Robert Weiss. West Side Story was written by Ernest Lehman, based on the play
1: by Jerome Robbins in the book Arthur Lawrence, and uncredited writing to William Shakespeare.
2: Produced by Saul Chaplin, Walter Marisch, and Robert Weiss. Music by Leonard Bernstein and Erwin Kostel. Cinematography by Daniel L. Fapp. Film editing by Thomas Stanford. Production design by Boris Levin. And costume design by Irene Shiroff. The West Side Story stars Natalie Wood as Maria. Richard Boehmer as Tony. Rush Tamblyn as Riff. Rita Moreno as Anita. George Chakiris as Bernardo. Simon Oakland as Lieutenant Shrank. Ned Glass as Doc, William Bramley as Officer Krupke, and Jose De Vega as Chino. So Ben, I want to start by asking you a question. And it Are we gonna sing? Like, can we sing? Is that you is can I... sing if you want to. I'm not singing. Are you kidding me? I want. Are you kidding me? Oh, so you weren't gonna ask me to Okay, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll listen. <laughs> I'll listen. So you already talked a little bit about how you have some experience with this movie. I actually didn't know that you worked on a production of it. That's really cool to hear. I have almost the complete opposite interaction and introduction to this movie. (laughs) And it probably came maybe like sixth or seventh grade where I was like forced to watch this, like this particular version of West Side Story in a music class. And I was thinking about this. And there's not many films, I think in general, there's not many that people are forced to watch. It's usually specifically in school, where there's movies that you're forced to watch, whether you want to or not, whether it's a part of the curriculum or not. You know, obviously, there's the holiday movies, every kind of holiday season that happens. But I was wondering, personally, this is completely kind of off topic but is there a movie that you have ever been like forced to watch and whether that has changed your opinion of the movie whether you've like come to liking a movie whether it took you some time to kind of like the movie because West Side Story was a movie that I was forced to watch one of those movies since it's like almost three hours long took about like four different classes to even get through and because of being forced to watch a movie there's almost like an inerrant hatred to it and this was like, really, I was pretty young. I mean, this is early middle school and, and just being forced to watch anything. Plus your young boy being forced to watch a musical, like there's already inherent biases against musicals. I think you're just kind of like forced to to kind of like poo-poo them as a young boy, trying to be like a manly boy who plays sports, right? All, all a bunch of stereotypes and all things I don't believe. But I always just found it interesting thinking about something that you're forced to watch and then, you know, having to later on think about it, rewatch it, and kind of dig deeper into it. So is there a movie that kind of pops up in your head that you were forced to watch? Not particularly. I was actually going to answer just with West Side Story, and I wasn't even forced to watch it. Movies
1: that, I mean, was I forced to watch The Ten Commandments as a kid? <laughs> no. Was it put on when, yeah? <laughs> you know, it was like one mm-hmm. of those, like I don't think I was actually ever really for. like I is Star Wars, like I don't remember the first time I watched it, because my dad would my dad spoiled the fuck out of it with me as a kid. he's like oh luke i'm your father and i'm like oh huh. like what does that mean and then as i grew up yeah. and realized i was like why'd you spoil that for me why not just let me experience that from my own um but anyways so i digress boring. i don't that's a hard thing i would really have to think about that but there wasn't really i don't really think there were many movies that i was like forced to watch but i do want to comment on like the west side story aspect of it and i've talked about my grandparents a lot before but in particular, I do think about my one grandma who, who could kind of convince me to watch the movie, and I don't really remember like why she convinced me to watch it. I think I just I, there was some I, there was some reason why I brought up West Side Story to her, and she's like, "Oh, I love it. It's like my favorite." She loved it, and what she loved specifically was the idea of during G. Officer Krupke that they would say Krup you. and she would always <laughs> kind of be, pause and go like like blank you like kind of mouthing it to me and i'm just like what and i was like oh they're trying to say like fuck you and yeah it's just like her whole like like she loved that and then so then watching this movie and and like just knowing that like so this is when this came out it was a year after like my dad was born so i'm just trying to think of my grandma like at a young age going with my grandfather to see this although knowing them they probably saw the original musical i'm sure there's some west side story playbill that my dad has that they had kept from over the years and just so like that to me like this idea that like this musical is it feels like nitty-gritty because like my new york grandmother loved it and she loved the idea they use like corrupt you like fuck you and it's like (laughs) so like ballsy as a musical so that's where like my personal story comes in with it um so i again like i wasn't really forced to watch it but i definitely grew an appreciation because of my grandma and then as i said before in the in the cold open that yeah like i in my high school like I was part of the production for it so um I know this like so going into this like movie in this episode I was like wow I know this movie like so well like I have so much to say about it and then as I was just saying to you before you know as we were recording kind of figuring out and planning I was like well wait I don't have like too much to say besides (laughs) because the story is everyone knows the story it's Romeo and Juliet right yeah it's so common It, it except this time it's whites and Puerto Ricans but what I have to say and what really grabbed me by the throat when I'm watching it again this time and the times I have watched it were, were the visuals of it. It's so visually stimulating and you know, for, it's not even just like the, the shots of, uh, of of New York City from up above and it's not even just all the dancing and the prologue. It's like the whole like minimalistic approach to the overture of just like the colors changing uh, of New York City. Like that, that screen that starts off the movie like that is what like such a Big visual cue that to like kind of get you ready is to hear this music and have this like very artistic look to the screen, and so that's what really caught my attention was these like crazy visuals that were were stunning and and really were trying to engross you and bring you into the movie and and into the story.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I love the opening color frames and then the opening. I mean, the introduction to New York City is one of the coolest openings I think out of any of the films that we've watched so far, and. For me, this film was kind of a struggle in the same way because, I mean, I haven't seen it nearly as many times as it sounds like you have, but I had to get through that struggle of kind of like always growing up disliking this movie because it was a movie that I was forced to watch and I literally had never watched it since. And it was a sh- it was kind of a shock to watch it again because I was like, this movie is so well made. It's kind of stunning how just well the framing alone and the choreography alone is like unbelievable and you're right, I felt the same way, but for me, this movie, because it's so simple in terms of the story it's telling, it just executed so well that I think it stands out. For me, it was kind of the easiest way to break this down was to kind of look at the two movies with the remake, Spielberg's most recent remake in 2021, and and use it as almost like a study on cinema and study on remakes and... And I feel like that's kind of the way that they made the film and and how they could change things, improve things, and and kind of manipulate things around to see if it it works for them or works for a modern era. And I totally think it does. I think it works really well. And I think there's some things that work better in the remake and and some things overall that work in the original film better. Uh, I guess just right off the top, because we're going to be talking about specific things, and I, I probably won't be able to kind of help myself and compare it to the remake do you prefer this original versus Spielberg's remake?
1: I think I I think I do prefer this one a little bit more because I've seen it more mm-hmm. often and Yeah. And I think again like my like the remake's great and it's it's fun. I definitely like it, but it doesn't have the same like appeal and one of the things that I thought really stood out about the 1961 version is the fact that it it tries to take a lot of those theatrical elements and put it into the movie where Spielberg used the musical, but it was like, well, how can we do this grander? How can we make this more, sure. more movie than musical? And that quote I read from Jerome Robbins in the beginning of the episode, he kind of, he it seems like they struggled with that. The, how do we make this feel cinematic? But what really stood out was like the fact they used, like they basically took like all the dancing and they just put it in real life settings, you know, instead of just on a stage, it's all real life and, and very interactive, very physical. And, and I think that's why I appreciate it more. Now, if you were to ask me about the actual acting itself, the acting, (laughs) I think I have to get to the 2021 version because the pretty much when, when they're not singing or dancing in the 1961 version, the acting is atrocious. I really, like, <laughs> I I don't think any, like, I know Rita Marino and George Shakir is won for their supporting roles, but some of that I feel like is more just because of the physicalness that they brought to it. And, like, Rita Marino is probably the, like, she's probably the MVP of the cast, but by no means do I think any of the actors in this movie were, was good.
2: I, I yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would go to the length of saying that they were just flat out bad. I think... Richard Boehmer as Tony is he's kind of flat but it almost fits his character right he's kind of like goofy he's he wanting to escape but 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 that's like the thing that Spielberg does in
1: his version is that he gives Tony this background that like Tony doesn't necessarily mean I don't know if they mean that he killed someone in the Sharks but he definitely kicked the crap out of somebody in the Sharks and yeah he almost killed someone right and so like that was kind of his like you know, his, what was eating his soul. Whereas in the sixty one version, there's not really much. They're just like, oh yeah, Tony used to run with the Jets. He's just Tony, over it. He's yeah. just over it. You know? Yeah, he's just yeah. over. But but if they had that element of like Tony has a dark past, then I feel like I would have like liked it a little bit more. And Richard Baymore, uh, Baymore, like later on, would say he wasn't happy with his performance and he thought that Tony should have been rougher and tougher and more like the street kid, but the way that Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins kind of dealt with him was like, Oh, you're just like more of the nice guy and yeah. more like a pretty face. And so Beamer like kind of felt that even while he was performing it, but I guess he didn't push it too hard. And the other thing when it comes to the acting is that a, a lot of them, and I think the only person who, who's not is George or two people are George Kears and Rita Marino. Although I think some of hers got mixed, uh, got recorded over, but a lot of the singing is not them. It's other people who perform the singing. And I think, like, that, like, so you hear these beautiful voices singing and all that. But then when mm-hmm. you hear the dialogue, like, Natalie Wood isn't that convincing of a Latina to me. I think at <laughs> times she even sounds German, like, with her accent.
2: Yeah, the accents and are weird.
1: The accents are super bizarre. And then, so there's, like, that element. And then the final element of why I don't really like the acting or, or the casting choices is, or I shouldn't say I don't like the casting. I think. Shakiris and Marino are great, but they also got very, like, what's the opposite of whitewash and not necessarily blackface, but like they had to like darken <laughs> their skin. You know, Rita well, Marino, like, she's Puerto Rican and they made her darker because she, they didn't think that she looked the right part of a Puerto Rican. Yeah. When she, like, it's so that's like the whole she's issue. And, like, most Puerto of them yeah. Yeah. Most of the Hispanic characters, most of the sharks, they're not Latin at all. George Shakiris has like a Greek, like, Turkish background. And he's from America. He has no Latin in, mm-hmm. his, in his body and in his blood. And so it's strange that a lot of the commentary from the movie and the idea of like, oh, everybody needs to come together and break down these racial divides also is very prevalent in their casting choices and what they did behind the scenes. Like they still were very racist and it just... It was, it's like, what the fuck? You're not even learning your own lesson, which is why. It's so bizarre. It's, it's bizarre, but that's why the Spielberg version, like, he really, you know, it takes a lot to have a lot of Hispanic characters. And speaking Spanish, too, is a huge thing because I know a lot of people up in arms that there weren't subtitles for the Spanish speaking parts, but he's like, well, no, it's authentic to them. And I kind of wish that the original 61 version had some Spanish in it. If it had subtitles, it had subtitles. If, if they did have it, but I think if they had some Spanish in it, it to the authenticity of the of the movie itself.
2: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I, I remember hearing a quote from Spielberg who said, you know, not showing subtitles during those scenes too kind of also takes away the the English kind of dominance over the film and lets these characters have their own language and lets anyone who's bilingual or who knows Spanish get like an insider look and kind of relate to those characters more. I think that's definitely a huge part. But yeah, in terms of the face paint it's 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 so astonishing and it's so distracting. I can't say this enough that like that them all being the same shade is so unnatural looking. It, it's it's disturbing almost in a way. Not even disturbing that they made them do that, but like disturbing to look at because it's so unnatural like humans do not all look the same shade even a white person Ben and I do not look the same shade we're just not there's different complexions there's different yellows and reds in your skin tone like it is so jarring to see that in a movie and I think we've seen it but it's usually you know around the world in, in 80 days it's it's fast like we go to a scene and everyone's the same skin color it's like okay like we know everyone's racist back then they refused to hire the the proper races But in this, where it's, like, all of our main characters are, like, in groups together, I even found, like, the Jets to all have weird skin tones. Like, for some reason, they wanted them to be, like, really tan, I guess, because they're all outside. So, like, they all have a really similar complexion as well. I don't know if you've noticed that. Oh, yeah. No, I I definitely... It's bizarre.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely did. And it, it truly does stand out. And to me, that's, like, as great as the technical stuff, and I want to get into some of the technical stuff is, like the, the coloring of of their faces is bizarre. The makeup choices are bizarre. So it, it really makes no sense for, again, for the idea that this is supposed to be very inclusive and the idea that we're going to break down stereotypes, we're going to break down walls. But do they really? <laughs> so, um, I um you know, there's a number of ways we can go. I just want to, I would love to talk about the technical stuff actually first because that was, that's like what makes this movie version a movie cinematic is how they captured it all and i love it i think the cinematography is really great it's grand it's sometimes can be a little static but again like they're capturing all this movement uh with the characters dancing and bouncing around on the street so incredible cinematography i really got to give it a lot of credit there the editing though is probably like the best part of this movie it is experimental there's so many moments like there are moments where they use the vaseline over the on the film to kind of like block everybody else out but mm-hmm. to have like just Tony and Maria like looking at each other, there's a lot of you know a lot of transitions that they play around with. Like there's one with Maria spinning and dancing around, and there's like, these red, greens, and blues, like versions of her like come, like almost like holographic like bouncing off her. Like that's like really crazy innovative. The before the rumble, there's this fence that they use as a transition point that's just all red, and then it fades mm-hmm. into the rumble. Um, it, it's 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 very like it's very like out there and and it's so different compared to what we have been seeing in previous movies like there wasn't like editing like this and so I really appreciated like this time around and it seems like Jerome Robbins was like kind of the motivator to have these like fantastical kind of edits and transitions and and to the next point with that is that he was so hands-on in like the choreography of it and he was like kind of pushing the cast to its limits and he got fired like kind of like <laughs> midway through the uh the production because he was going over budget he was taking so many like retakes of, of these choreo these huge choreography scenes he was responsible for the prologue cool america and then i think there's one more song that he did i'm forgetting off the top of my head right now but the fact that like that then uh robert wise had to take over and he kind of just brought the film back while still holding these like intentions that felt like the Robins had because he wanted to make it cinematic, he wanted to get theatrical elements and make it into film really stands out. So I just wanted to take that quick second just to say like the technical elements, amazing, probably not the coloring and the sound at times it sounds very tinny. There, there's some very weird <laughs> echoes in the sound design, but that's it for my technical
2: stuff. I'm ready to sing. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I find it really interesting that you can almost tell in the movie when he leaves because I think there's a lot less dancing it's a lot like it's not nearly as big there's not nearly as as large choreographic choreographic, like you know movements and and interactions even the fight scene the rumble later on is not nearly as well choreographed as the the opening fight scene which I think we definitely should talk about and I think this is another thing that was kind of challenging for me and it still is challenging for me is the opening fight scene we get we get such a cool introduction to the world, whether it's the Spielberg version or the, the 61 version here, where we have all these beautiful shots of the city and we're slowly getting further or we're getting closer and closer to the West side. And, you know, we get to the point where it transitions into a musical, we hear the snaps, the iconic snaps. Like it's hard to think about snaps without thinking about this iconic Mm -hmm. scene and just jumping around. But there is something about the fighting and the dancing And really, them using the dancing as a way to show fighting without really showing the fighting has always just been something that just has always grinded against me. It's always too—it's so weird because there's some musicals that I love that are just filled with dancing, but something about taking a tough gang and making them, like, skip and jump and, like, jump over each other and snap— I just don't buy it. It's just so goofy and weird to me that like it just it goes it just goes too beyond believing. And that's what musicals are, right? You're singing to someone and you're, that's really them expressing their their biggest emotion their their most natural way to express to someone how much they love them. And this is the same way they're taking fighting and they're making it dancing. And I get what they're doing. And I think it looks beautiful. The choreograph all the choreography is absolutely amazing and so well done it's just hard for me to buy. It's just something that I could never really get with for some reason.
1: Yeah, I I totally hear that and I think that I I, I don't mind it so much and I and I like I like it because it's that musical aspect to it, but then when I think about later best picture winners or are musicals, I think of, you know, Sound of Music. There's not these big choreography moments and it feels more like a film than an actual like hey, here's a musical that's being put on film whereas sure. this like this feels very intentional that we're going to take these musical aspects of it that we're going to take this choreography that is very iconic from the stage and put it on film so yeah it it seems goofy because when they kick they do like these like jump kicks and it's very like flowy <laughs> and and it's really it's really good and and it's well coordinated but it, it, yeah it kind of takes away that element like oh are these tough guys are are they not but then it also gets into gender <laughs> dynamics and yeah and and, fluidy, and what which it
2: is, me- it's part of the movie too right like that's yeah very much a part of the movie
1: yeah that that point that part is with uh the character anybody's and you know it, it it's it's interesting it's interesting the idea of the rough and tumble guys but then they're also dancing and they're and they're expressing <laughs> that through dance and i think and i think that's just very intentional you know it's very yeah and but i can understand that idea of like well how am i supposed to believe it if like they're just sashaying a thing is that yeah. is that a word for dance I, <laughs> yeah, I can't yeah. dance
2: all i do is fist bump <laughs> <laughs> it's it is one of those things where i'm like this is beautiful it looks awesome it's so well made and i love all the 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 primary colors that they use in the 1961 version and how bright it is and it's part of the reason why I think I like the the fight scene in Spielberg's version a little bit more. It's more grimy. It's dirty. They they actually fight a lot more in the 1961 version. Like, they finally get to the point where they're about to fight, and then it's kind of like more running away, more jumping over each other. And then they get to a fight uh, in the kind of basketball court area before they get interrupted by Crumpke and the detective – but it's, like, not really a fight. They're just kind of grabbing each other and kind of moving each other around. It's a very 1960s-style fight, right? There's not even, like, punches thrown. So it's it's just a little bit hard for me to believe that they're actual gangs where in the new version there's it's it's pretty violent. I mean they're pretty like aggressive. There's a, a nail through a character's ear. Like it is it's a lot more and rough and dirty where it makes me feel like these are actually tough guys. These are actually people that can kill people and, and cause harm in a real way. Which I just don't really feel that in, in this nineteen sixty one version. And I think there's a a bit of a difference in Shrank's character as well. I think in Shrank's character in the 1961 version it's so He's he's pretty one note, right? He's just this guy who basically is tired of this. He doesn't want to deal with with all the mayhem. And there's not as much uh, in the '61 version as there is in the uh, Spielberg version, where we have like a siding that Shrank has, where on the jet side he he's like, "All right, you guys are like the whites. I understand your point of view. I really want you guys to win." And I found that like an interesting change to his character where. It, it adds obviously more dimension to his character, but it also has a realistic feeling where even criminals that are white have like a higher past than any sort of other race, right? And there's there's always kind of like an allegiance that people have with, with their specific race that always kind of gets overlooked. And while Schrenk doesn't want any crime to actually happen, he's obviously going to side with the Jets in the Spielberg version over in the 1961 version where he's just like, he's just like an over it. He's just like a detective. He's like, I'm here. You guys are so annoying. I hate that you even exist. Let's move on. Like, let's just get this over with before the neighborhood's gone. Right.
1: Yeah. There's definitely a lot of that. And again, I think that's like intentional. That's the point of, of having Shrank Cause it's the systematic, you know, racism that's involved in, in police yeah. force and, and all that. And, and it's actually highlighted in America and in that song. Um, there are a few lines. So one of, uh, bernardo says lots of doors slamming in our face another line says better get rid of your accent um, and then all the boys say in response to the girls if you're all white in america because they say life is all right in america if you're all right if you're all white in america um, <laughs> so there's you know so that like those are in the songs like lyrics so like it and that is why like i have the issues with the fact they don't ha they didn't have so many you know latin characters or latin actors playing these characters is because the music is literally there saying like don't whitewash like don't do this and yet we're still doing that (laughs) in these versions so it's it's mind-blowing uh you know to have you know that they the originators did that and did it with this movie so we've talked a little bit about the the technical side the choreography and the acting but let's get into some of the numbers i feel like that's the biggest way that we can kind of talk about this movie so we talked about the intro and the prologue um is there any i don't think there's anything we haven't hit on from that no i think we hit it all yeah cool so we hit that um the you know when you're a jet you're a jet from your first cigarette to your last dying days great <laughs> like cause that, like that's just a great line there's some like, great
2: writing yeah
1: yeah like that's a really great song uh, russ Hamblin really shines in that one the next like big uh song or moment for me is the dance the dance scene is, it's a pretty like lengthy scene, but yeah. there's, the dancing of that is incredible with how the the sharks and the jets like dance with, but against each other. You know, there's this like very rocker 1950s, like Elvis feel to the mm-hmm. jets, but the sharks have this, this suave Latin kind of very smooth flowy movement within theirs. So it's interesting to see those battle, but then also come together at points when the uh when the people at the school try to get them to dance together and then that's also where tony and maria meet and that's also kind of the point of the movie where i'm like no i care more about riff and bernardo's kind of whole back and forth (laughs) versus like tony and maria like i know they're the stars of this or supposed stars of the musical uh but this is where they kind of take full force so the dancing any big things stand out to you uh coming from that number
2: yeah absolutely i mean it's so red This movie loves the color red. It's just so primary red. The entire room is painted red. And also we have the amazing transition to the dance in, in the gymnasium, which you kind of hinted at earlier where Maria just is spinning, basically spinning in the, in the dress shop. And she just turns like a, her aura basically turns red and everything's just trippy. And it's sixties trippy vibe. And it transitions us to everyone dancing in the red gym. And, Aesthetically, it's like, whoa, it's so far out there that like we've never seen some of the editing, the transitions, some of the even the look and feel of the film feels so beyond what we've seen in the 50s and the 40s and going back. And uh, it was it was definitely vibrant and, and bright. And I love the dancing. I wish that, you know, again, the opening was an actual fight because this dance scene does, I think exactly what the opening scene does, which shows you their cultural differences and and how they are so different purely just based on their movement and their actions, which I I really love. And I, it's, it's incredible dancing and choreography here as well. Yeah, that's a really
1: good point because it it is the same kind of uh, narrative, the same kind of intentions for what they do in the prologue and the dance scene. And, yeah, I can totally see like maybe they they there should have been more fighting. And I guess like the idea is that they were like through the dancing were fighting. You know, yeah, exactly. Whereas yeah. literally during the dancing they're they're fighting through dancing.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So
1: uh yeah, so that, that's like that's a it's a good setup. It's a huge scene, a lot of reds. Um there is one note that I found that was interesting, the like the school, like the the teacher, I think it's maybe even a social worker that kind of like gets them all to like dance with each other, the sharks and the mm-hmm. jets. That's John Aston, who is Sean Aston's dad. Sean Aston's Samwise Gamgee from Lord of the Rings. For, oh wow. Uh, yeah. It's like he was in there. And I, I saw another note that the uh Macaulay Colkin and his brothers, a uh, Kieran Colkin, their um their dad was a kid in the opening scene playing basketball. The Jets kind of like bully a little bit. Wow. That's yeah, fascinating. So, yeah, like really fascinating, really like odd coincidences. Um, so so there's that. Uh little tangent right there anyway so the dance scene happens and then
2: my favorite number before you move on i just wanted to talk about tony and maria meeting oh yeah you talked about that's the scene where you were talking about them using uh the vaseline yeah (laughs) i almost said ky jelly very different (laughs) than the vaseline very different (laughs) (laughs) which i found very interesting i mean it's it's bizarre in the way it looks because it's You know, it's funny coming from our point of view so far in the future and we can open up our phone and open up Snapchat or even open up Zoom what we're talking on right now and and blur our background instantly and have us keyframed out perfectly, our entire background's blurred out. But for them, they had to physically take a print out and like rub jelly over to make things blurred. And you can see those like not perfect lines, but you can see kind of what they're attempting and what they're trying to do. And the way that they're, Almost like consciousness and their love for each other, which is this is such a love at first sight kind of movie where it's like if you don't buy it, like the movie doesn't work, whatever. I've gone on so many tangents about that as well, but I found it really romantic the way they kind of they fade away together like they start dancing together and it sort of just fades into black where they kind of are then separated from everyone else Uh, while the remake is I think cinematically it looks Stunning from the technology, all the stuff that we have and those lens flares. Yeah, he loves his lens flares in this movie and it's really astonishing. And that's a big thing that I found so different is that the colors in the remake are so muted compared to the original bright primary colors but Spielberg really loves to add the color with his lighting like a a lot of the color from the dance scene in the remake is is blue and red and that all comes from these big bright lights that are constantly you know shooting off all these crazy lens flares and i really loved in the remake the way they just kind of transition to under the bleachers because like you know we've all had moments i think where we snuck under bleachers where whether we were like trying to kiss a girl we kissed a girl or whether me, me and a bunch of friends were just trying to sneak under the bleachers so i really loved that uh moment in the remake as well it's it's kind of hard to compare the two because they this is where it's like you can really see the technical differences between the two movies
1: oh yeah 100 percent like that that certainly stands out that and then a remake where again the lens flares the editing like the camera movements the way that like it's it's static in the dance scene the 61 version but in the 2021 version it's very immersive and very you know gets the camera in in with the dancing so yeah you got to give spielberg credit there for for blending the two um so yeah the dance scene is huge it's fun it's energetic it really gets you going and again like i care more about riff and bernardo and and that tension that gets built and then it transitions to what you would call romeo and juliet the um the balcony scene because now Mm -hmm. tony is going to find maria and finds her on her fire escape and and so this is my favorite musical number is maria i've actually the last like two weeks i've had that song on my spotify on repeat (laughs) and i've just been singing like maria i just (laughs) met a girl named maria i can't even sing like that but i love the (laughs) lyrics in this and you know he i I just want to read it so maria i've just met a girl named maria and suddenly that name will never be the same to me Maria, I've just kissed a girl named Maria and suddenly i found how wonderful a sound can be. Maria, say it loud and there's music playing. Say it soft and it's almost like praying. Maria, I'll never stop saying Maria. And like, I'm getting chills just saying that. And <laughs> and it just brings back so many memories. Like I remember sitting, you know, behind the stage during my high school's production of it and and hearing it being sung. And I was just like, oh my God, like this is really, it's romantic. It It, it adds... So much to like that idea. What was what it in in? No, it's in it's in Romeo and Juliet. What's in a name? Uh, I think Juliet says that because she's saying like, "What's in a name?" About being a Capulet versus a Montague, type of mm-hmm. thing. So like, what's in a name? Maria. It's everything in a name. It it's it, it it's everything that I could want in a world. I can't get it out of my head, and so like, I love that. I love that idea and yeah it's kind of goofy because they just met they met maybe for for five seconds and they were madly in love they were talking about marriage they were talking about running away together and all this it's teenagers falling in love but i think just the sentiment the idea of like in a name when you find someone that's special like you can't get it out of your head and it's such like a wonderful sound and uh i just love it i love that song and i, and I love how you know tony is singing it in in the 61 version and he, and he's looking for her and he finds her you know in the balconies and
2: um just really beautiful moments right there for him. yeah it's absolutely beautiful it's like a lot of emerald green this beautiful green color throughout those scenes and i really relate i mean as much as i've always talked about on this podcast how i hate really sped up romance like romances and and just sped up relationships especially when they're like madly in love and want to run away together like you said there's there's something to this where before they get to like talking on the balcony and they get to just show how madly in love they are, just him like longing for her, like wanting to see her again, even just saying her name just brings him happiness. And that I think sparked a, a chord with me where I met my girlfriend in a mail room on our college campus and we didn't like exchange numbers right away when we met each other, but there was like a spark there when we first met each other in the mail room. And it wasn't like, we flirted back and forth there was just like an instant connection that's like really hard to explain like we both obviously didn't even know that much we didn't know anything about each other we just like felt the initial attraction and love Uh, and I mean love is a huge word that we didn't really know each other at that point but you know there's something there that like it's hard to explain and I think that's why musicals are so beautiful there's something that is is so hard to explain but he does he puts it in words and he puts it specifically in her name by just showing how much that means to him and how that name will never be the same is I think an absolute beautiful line uh, to kind of put in that song and show how he's so changed by just looking at someone and, and the way they just lock eyes and connect instantly it was something really touching. It's so touching and so beautiful. And then what
1: it leads to is my second favorite song of the entire musical, which is tonight um and this is again like tony and maria going back and forth like tony's trying to be like you know the smooth like oh i'm a white boy coming on your balcony and she's like no my parents will find you and this and that and then they get into tonight and again the lyricism is so beautiful and i wish i could sing it and, and do it justice but um they say tonight the world is full of light with suns and moons all over the place tonight tonight the world is wild and bright going mad shooting sparks into space Today the world was just an address, a place for me to live in, no better than all right, but here you are, and what was just a world as a star tonight. And again, I'm getting chills just saying it, and then the ultimate chill factor, and this is, I think, my favorite shot of the entire movie of the 61 version is, it's this low angle shot of Tony looking up at Maria while she's on the balcony, and they're singing to each other, they say, good night, good night, sleep well, and when you dream, dream of me tonight. oh i i get i'm like i'm chilled right now like thinking about it like it's such a it's such a great shot and and when it's this swell this build up and you're like oh my god i love that they're in love and i love this i want like more of that and then that and uh, what's so unfortunate is the movie kind of for me from there like it doesn't go like totally down but it it starts to go like gradually like krupke is like a nice like number the the quintet version of tonight when it's kinda of like halfway point, but then it starts to kinda of go down a little bit from there. Uh but what two like huge numbers to have back to back uh between Maria and tonight in the film.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I love the way they tie tonight later on and everyone's getting ready for tonight and the the women don't really know how the rumble's actually happening and what's really going on and the men are preparing for the rumble. It's so intense and, and wild. Crumpkey is a is a goofy song. It's it's almost like unnecessary really for the film. Uh, It just kind of gives another musical number. It's another fun, flashy dance. That's a musical number that I think actually I prefer in the Spielberg version. It's it's in a different like placement in particular, and yeah, it's it's inside the courthouse. Yeah, Uh, in in the police station. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's placed I think a little bit better, and it's in a better location. Um, We talked a little bit about America, but I what a weird choice to put that on a rooftop and just like put it in the darkness where. It's a great song. I'm not going to deny anything about the song. It's great, and there's some great dancing on that rooftop. But comparing it, because I'm going to keep comparing it to the remake, it's it's like night and day with the remake on how big and lavish and it's all outdoors. It's, it's kind of very similar to In the Heights uh, opening number where it's all bright and colorful. I think it does such a better job of showing Puerto Rican life uh in the day to day and just how vibrant and and how much they add to the community in new york and compared to the original where it's just in at night it's still the same night that uh tony's meeting maria and it just it doesn't work as well as as a, in in the remake for me personally but yeah moving on i guess we could get to the rumple before we get to the remaining songs and talk about uh the fight and and what do you think about the fight and and really, it comes down to obviously Tony's there. He's trying to stop the fight. He wants it to be over, but it's really Riff, played by Russ Tamblyn, who's kind of the lead here. He's the one who's initiating the fight, trying to to kill Bernardo directly. I personally, if there's a character I hate the most in this movie, it's Riff, and I I really? don't I don't think it's the character itself. I think it's the performance of Russ Tamblyn, which. You know, God bless him. I'm sure he had some great roles in his life, but I just can't stand his performance in this movie. I think he's like the most distracting. I think he's just he's very frustrating. I think from a character point of view, because he keeps putting people in danger. Obviously there's that, but I just like didn't buy his performance at all. I thought he was by far this the worst in terms of his acting performance. I didn't really buy his toughness at all. I didn't I couldn't really see this like little like scrawny guy being a tough leader of a gang i i felt like from the very casting of him of riff i just didn't buy him at all but it seems like you like his performance here
1: yeah it's one he's probably like my third favorite like if i had to rank it i would go anita bernardo then riff in terms Mm -hmm. of characters that i liked in their performance his dancing is incredible in this movie yeah and and he even said he was a dancer i think yeah and russ tamblin he told a story about how Fred Astaire came out to him and compliments him, complimented wow. him on his dancing, which is just absolutely fantastic. So I, I love Russ Hamlin. I think that he, I think he does have some of that toughness. So I kind of disagree with that uh, I guess, your points. But it, is it like a great performance? No, like none of these are like great performances. But I yeah. thought like his. I, I really liked him, but he does make some
2: pretty shitty decisions for for the Jets. <laughs> he makes some uh, really shitty decisions, and I think he's got some pretty awful line reading here and there. But I do agree; his his dancing is is unbelievable, and there's a reason why he's in the forefront, and in the center of the gang throughout the opening fight scene. There's there's a lot of reasons, and that specifically seemed to be why he was casted and and why he he really got the role here. I just didn't didn't buy him. But moving back to the Rumble. I just wanted to hear your thoughts. I mean, we don't have to compare the two too much. Uh I know we're mainly focusing on the nineteen sixty one version here. But what did you think of their fight? They're a little kind of stabby stabby. You know, we get <laughs> Tony getting hit, we get him trying to hold back, but he still can. He's he's gotta go and fight Bernardo anyway. They kinda have to break that conflict because of him dating Maria. What did you think of the fight, Ben? Yeah, I um I I thought it was well choreographed between like
1: the when Bernardo is going after Tony and Riff and him and you know the two of them going back and forth but my real like my real question and what I want to talk about is is it just what Tony did and Tony kind of justifies it as it's like this fit of like white hot rage that he was so angry at the idea that Riff was killed that he he had to kill back he had and and that's where I was talking about with the knowing Tony's background in the Spielberg version. We know that Tony had this like kind hot of hot headed side of him. Cause he beat the crap out of somebody. Sure. And in this one, it's like, wait, Tony, you're a nice guy. Why did like all of a sudden, why did, why are you the only one who's pissed that, that riff died? Like none of the other jets came in and went to go stab Bernardo. And it's one of those moments where like, I know it's a movie, it's drama. It's based on Romeo and Julia. That's what happened. Um, between what was it Marcuccio and Tybalt I think are the two characters regardless I just like that's where like my mind goes I'm just like I'm like was Tony like should he have done that like they probably would have gotten this like he probably could have gotten Bernardo arrested gone to Maria slept with Maria married her and been like fuck you Bernardo and then be done with the entire thing but no he had to let his white male rage get the best of him and he
2: was seeing red literally because Bernardo was wearing red and he just killed him. (laughs) Yeah, he's a bull. He just saw red and had to attack. No, it's one of those things where, yeah, it's a movie. I mean, he's got to attack and he's got to like kind of push us into the third act and it's frustrating. That's for sure. I I don't really think you really buy that he is that kind of tough. You don't really buy that he would even try to kill someone let alone just full on stab them in the heart. But, it, it's there. It, I mean, it's so fast and jarring the way it happens. He just kind of like jumps at him, uh, after he's so angry about riff and it's, it just causes an all out scatter. Everyone panics and kind of like breaks out and runs away. it, it it felt like this film, and this is probably the difference of direction, it felt like this should have been such a bigger scene in terms of a a bigger choreographed fight. Like, there is some back and forth and some fighting. I just thought it would be bigger just based on purely the the opening fight scene. I thought it would kind of evolve and, and be a little bit bigger. I think the only thing I wanted to mention, and it's so tiny, is uh the spotlight that follows
1: Tony after is so <laughs> goofy. Like, that's like one of those goofy moments where it takes you out of the movie. You're like, come on. Like how, like he's like hiding against the wall. He's like, oh, like trying to plaster himself like flat against it. It's like, yeah. clearly he can see you. Just fucking run, you idiot. Like, I, like, is it, and, and like and like, this is something I always get into with, with movies, musicals and all that is like, they'll take like a short, like a small amount of space and make it seem like they're running for miles. So isn't that moment <laughs> where like Tony's like hiding and, and getting away from the spotlight? Like, is he supposed to be like going, is that supposed to be a ton of space he's covering? I probably. don't know. <laughs>
2: but probably. <laughs> What's so interesting uh, and I think this is maybe one of the biggest changes besides the character of Doc in the remake is that I feel pretty, which is one of the next big songs that we really haven't talked about, uh, it appears after the fight. So in the remake the fight happens, the rumble happens, uh, they, the both of these characters die and then we immediately cut to Maria with Anita and they sing I feel pretty and it's supposed to be this really heartbreaking scene where she doesn't even know that her brother just died and and her husband just died and and they're just kind of enjoying the moment uh, feeling like alive and she's so madly in love where in the 1961 version we have I feel pretty coming uh, way earlier in the film right it's it's after they meet it's before the rumble it's it's after the America song but it just feels so much better to me to have it before the actual rumble so what do you feel about the change that then they put it after the actual rumble and it's supposed to be jarring intentionally but how do you feel about that specific change because that's one of the biggest changes they made really
1: yeah it's a it's
2: bizarre it, it's a little weird uh, because again like what you're saying is
1: supposed to kind of juxtapose like I feel pretty versus like the rumble where there's death and there's you know it, I was gonna say destruction but it's not really destruction but just like the idea of like <laughs> prettiness and ugliness and and the juxtaposition of that like that's that is very fascinating and interesting and actually i feel pretty is my my introduction to i feel pretty was from a university anger management yeah 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 <laughs> that's the best uh
2: <laughs> iteration <laughs> of i feel pretty yeah just seeing jack nicholson going what mirror where what <laughs> <laughs> mirror yeah i love i literally only hear the two of them singing when i think of i feel pretty you're well, absolutely pretty right great? There, <laughs> <we're there. One laughs> row, adam, and it's so funny because like the way adam sandler sings is always that that really goofy high-pitched voice so it's so <laughs> funny that he can kind of like balance him i feel with... pretty. <laughs> oh, yeah. so pretty balance him so well it's amazing w- watch that movie anchor management if you haven't seen it probably so offensive looking it's back so... on it now <laughs> but man that movie's hilarious yeah it's funny but even so even there i want to just not trying to harp
1: on natalie wood too much but like even in that song i'm like you sound not hispanic like and i know it, <laughs> it was marnie nixon who was doing her singing voice but it's like did was anyone even trying to do like just a normal just like don't we don't need an accent just sing it and uh it, it's very bizarre uh but yeah it, it, that's actually not one of my favorite numbers so i feel pretty happens the rumble happens. And pretty much after that, the rumble, that's where the movie is like, there's like what, 50 minutes left after the rumble in, in the 61 version. And I'm like, that's the, and that's the part of the story <laughs> in, the, in the musical too, where I'm just like, let's speed this up. Like, let, let's get this huh. going because I don't like cool. It's like this, the choreography of cool is good, but I don't really care too much about the rest of the jets at that point you know i care more about if and the moments where like oh my god like chino's after tony let's go find tony and protect him from chino like that's fine but the whole cool like the cho- it's more for the cho- choreography that moment but the the music isn't great for me and then a boy like that i have a love like i don't really like that song too much but that's also what leads to <laughs> maria and anita's like you know riff against each other and then she sends so anita to, to go grab tony And then that's probably where, like, I want to talk about is like the lead up to the end. Is Anita does this very selfless act. She, her boyfriend, Bernardo, her love, is dead. And then she's willing to help Maria to get Tony out of hiding and go to Doc's shop. And then what she's met with is essentially what leads to Tony's death. And it's the hate, it's the cruelty, it's the racism within the Jets and that community. Because they see Anita, they don't see a person trying to help Tony. They just see a Puerto Rican, and yeah, so, and so it's what they do to her by attacking her and like attempting to rape her. And even Rita marino said, like, like I, I guess she was sexually assaulted when she was younger, but she brings up like how that brought up such bad memories and and the feelings that she got. So it's very emotionally effective with the idea that like all these guys just ganging up on her, and then out of rage, she's like, well no maria's dead go tell your friend tony that and then then that leads to doc telling the jets to get out and then he tells tony that you know that maria's dead and then tony runs out he's and he's going chino come come after me chino and then he sees maria and then boom he's dead and leads to the very dramatic ending
2: <laughs> yeah i i'm yeah we're gonna talk about the scene uh i'm gonna say and have to compare it to to the remake because it's very integral to Doc's character, who's now a completely different character called Valentina in in the remake version. Uh, I, I also do. I don't let me forget. I want to get back to a boy like that because that's actually my favorite song in this whole what? musical, and you just skipped over it so disrespectfully. And uh, I'll get back to that in a second. Thumbs but down. It, it is. Uh, well, it's probably because you're mainly thinking of of uh, the 1961 version here. Okay, yes. I'll go into it real quick. The 1961 version of a boy like that. It It is, it kind of sucks in compared to the remake. I got to be honest because, and I know we've been talking so much about Marino, but her performance is just not good. And, and, and a lot of this movie, I, I just flat out will say that. And, and her performance in a boy like that just makes no sense. Like she just found out that her husband is dead, that her, her good friend who is the sister of her husband also lost her brother. What? Boyfriend, and she's, but yeah. oh, it's boyfriend. Thank you, thank yeah. you for correcting me. I keep thinking they're all that they're teenagers. teenagers. They're all like supposed to be sixteen,
1: seventeen years old,
2: which it just doesn't feel like it when you talk about Anita and Bernardo's character no, at all, no. especially in the remake. They feel so old, but in the nineteen sixty one version, like she, there's like not even like pain or anger. It's like she's blank, and then, until it's she sees that Tony is leaving Maria's room and then it's like she ignites and is like, what What the hell are you doing? Like, did you not learn anything? Like, and then she goes off and, and sings the song. But it's like, where is the anger? Where is the rage? You would be fuming. You would be so angry and upset. And when you watch the remake, it's like this incredible performance and she would go on to win the uh, Best Supporting Actress again. But like, it is such a better performance and it's so much more dynamic and just like, fiery. It's it's an amazing song in the remake, and I think it's just so underutilized in the original, and it's probably why you don't really like it in the original so much, but I just absolutely love it because it's taking Anita's character who's been really the positive one. She's been trying to like inspire Bernardo. She's been trying to lift people up by saying like, you know, America's not perfect. It's definitely racist. It's filled with a lot of bad things, but there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of things to love about America. And she's like that golden light for Bernardo and he gets killed and 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 she almost like loses that entirely and now she's at the point of like pure frustration because her her own Flesh and blood, essentially, is completely trading by dating the person and not even dating, but now sleeping with the person that killed her boyfriend. So it's just like this heartbreaking moment in the film that I just don't think is really sold by Marino at all until we get to like the actual singing, which, again, is not even her, unfortunately. I just... Thought it was so so much better done in the remake, and there's so much passion, and like she's crying throughout the entire singing performance. It's so dramatic and and just wonderful. Had to get to that. But moving on to Anita's attack. Sorry, I'll let you speak. I don't want to cut no, you no, off. No, no. I I
1: mean, I just I I've been trying to like consciously like not to too much of the. And we talked about this about like I'm not trying to compare the two because we're trying to review the 61. And I, I, yeah, you're right. The 61 version is not really. It's not as compelling as what what they bring in the twenty twenty one version, but that's also like, again, the idea of remakes is that what can we do now? Like, how can we enhance it now than what we couldn't do before? And I I don't know if acting is better nowadays, but technology is better, so you can you can do so much more and do so much with the depth of the visuals that it kind of helps with what's going on. Whereas like. And this version, there's some dynamic lighting, but a lot of it is is kind of flat. It's kind of just like supposed to be captured from all angles. It feels very musical. It's like high key lighting. Yeah, man. exactly. And it's not my favorite, but I guess it's more from the 61 version because of that. So yeah, so the movie, it Anita gets attacked. She tells us, Tony, again, I was saying what goes out. It's like, Chino, come find me, sees Maria. He gets shot, and then he dies in her arms. So that's kind of where the difference between this one and Romeo and Juliet is, because maria Juliet lives and i actually think that natalie woods performance in this moment is really good because she brings so much emotion to the character to the moment that it's sort of hard to not feel like it's like lumping your throat like okay yep Tony's dead maria's you know (laughs) you kind of get that and she said and the lines that she ends this with it is so good Uh, she says all of you you all killed him and my brother and riff not with bullets or guns with hate well now i can kill too because now i have hate and (laughs) and and that's what this whole again that the social commentary of it is that there's so much hate that you can kill like it doesn't matter what the differences are if you're just going to hate then hate is just going to trump over every everything else and then the movie ends with like this like funeral procession where like the jets and sharks lift Tony's body together. And what I really like about the ending is is they all like everyone kind of walks off separately. And and when you see it on the stage, it's even more haunting. It's like it's, it's like hauntingly like beautiful because it's very ominous. Like these like I'm pre- I'm pretty sure they're minor notes uh, from the score. It's just very like these like drone y kind of uh, vibes and and sounds to it. And every character just walks off, and it's just like, oh, like really? They had to. This had to happen. Like, no, Tony could have lived, and this and that. And the movie ends on such a down note, but it's still so emotional and dramatic that you're like wiping away tears from watching
2: it. Yeah, there's the deleted scene of all the uh, jets carrying his body and just tossing it into the Hudson River. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> <laughs> yeah they cut that scene for yeah. unknown reasons it, was, uh, it really killed the vibe just, of them just they, chucking his body into the water just put
1: it to a trash can <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah with like an old metal trash can and they yeah. put the lid his arms like hanging out the side of well, the trash can the, all the Jetson sharks are like well that was dramatic <laughs> and they all like start a bonfire in yeah. the trash can for his honor sing kumbaya Oh, and man. then move down to the east side and then it's all good. <laughs> yeah, I, I really love the ending here. It's very heart, heartfelt and touching and it's it's it, it really is tragic. And I think it, it needs to be tragic because I think it needs to hit the audience with what the movie's going for and about not trying to like fight your differences and just accept the differences and just try to learn to grow with each other. And I, I found that really heartfelt and, and really touching. Um, In terms of the actual full-on ending in the credits. I absolutely we talked about the opening credits they're freaking awesome the opening scenes of introducing us to new york but i love the ending credits in this movie and it's one of the most unique and stylized end credits that we've seen out of any best picture winner for sure the way that their names are just kind of displayed in graffiti and we're just like slowly getting to another another cast member or an, another crew member and and they're all just intermixed with all this graffiti and all this like gross city kind of texture and it was such a cool unique way to end a movie all, you know giving your credits your standard credits i thought it was super cool
1: yeah i i definitely like that too it again adds the whole this the style and the feel that Robbins and wise were going for and it really does pay off by the end because it it's so unique and, and it's not even just like the credits but all the the production design the art direction it's so intentional with all the graffiti and and what's placed in the background uh, it, 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 I could just watch the movie and just look for stuff in the background for contextual clues. So the idea they use graffiti and on the walls to kind of end it. I don't know if that it's kind of like a commentary on like that's forever. Like these names are like etched in stone kind of thing. Like this is a yeah, forever. You can't take it down. St- yeah. Exactly. And um, yeah, I. it's great to even point that out. So I feel like we talked a lot about the movie, both movies. Um, Is there any final thought from you, John?
2: Yeah, the last thing I'll end with, because I've compared the two movies so much, probably way more than you wanted me to do, but I couldn't help <laughs> myself. But I wanted to end by talking a little bit, and we don't have to go too deep into this, but the way Spielberg introduces the film in the rubble, and it's, it's not the sim- same kind of similar introduction to the 61 version. He kind of just takes us right into the rubble, and then we're kind of starting into the fight. Uh, and... What I found interesting is that opening, there's a sign for the Lincoln Center and how this neighborhood that's being destroyed in the West Side is going to be replaced with luxury apartments and the Lincoln Center, which is a famous, iconic, actual performing theater in New York. And and for us who lived in New York for such a long time, you know, I've been to the Lincoln Center. I find it so funny that, like, this movie is, is recognizing how it's destroying these people's homes and their lifestyle. Yet. That Lincoln Center is such an iconic place in New York now, and it's like a place known for film premieres. And I wonder if this particular movie even had its New York premiere at the Lincoln Center, and how weird and meta that actually is. I just found it a a insider kind of New York thing that uh, was really interesting, and and to think about how I've been to that area a bunch of times, I've seen movies at the amc that's right next to the lincoln center it's just a weird little tidbit that i found so interesting in in the remake yeah it, and
1: i like that that was included in the remake It was to show like what is going to be put there and also at the time of the 61 movie they didn't like i think it was 62 or 63 when lincoln center was complete so they wouldn't have even mm-hmm. known like, like yeah. what was going to be there and the whole idea. And, and mm-hmm. so I think that maybe they had an idea that all these people were being displaced, um, that they didn't really know like how, cause it's a very bougie area now. It, it's so, it's I,
2: funny to think about yeah. gangs running around right in that area. Right. Well,
1: it's also funny to think about like, I'm sure people have done showings of the movie there, there. Yeah. And it's like, wait a second. We're here on the same grounds where it's like this whole battle and, and all these frustrations take place because of because of of oh man so many of what society brings because of what people think is what theirs is theirs but not really it's theirs it's for everybody type of thing so that i think that's why makes this musical so universal is it really is for everybody and there is you can put any groups that are going against each other and you can put it within this story within this context and that's why It's been adapted so much, and that's why, like, even going back to Shakespeare, adapted it from an Italian poem like that. It's been over and over again, the story has been told. So, that's West Side Story, but let's jump into the 34th Academy Awards.
0: The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences presents its 34th Annual Achievement Award. We've also learned that there's no contest in the selection of our master ceremonies. So, once again, He is a member of our community who, like many of us, has a lovely family, a nice home, plays a fair game of golf, and manages to find work. He's just an average citizen, except that when you add his charm, his talent, and his warm heart, you've got the nicest guy in town when he manages to get back here. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bob Hope. Thank you very much, President. Wendell Corrin, good evening, ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Judgment at Santa Monica. (laughs) Yes, here we are in Santa Monica for the real West Side Story. That's what I like about our industry. The big moment for Hollywood movies comes to you from Santa Monica on television. (laughs) We're located just a few feet from the magnificent blue Pacific. In fact, we left the side door open so the cast of Mutiny on the Bounty could wade ashore. This is an exciting night, the moment we've all been waiting for. In just a few hours, the Dodgers' new ballpark will be open.
2: <laughs>
0: now, this is the night when the entire nation's eyes are on Hollywood. The Kennedys even gave their travel agent the night off. <laughs> this is the 34th Annual Academy Awards presentations. For you, the Academy Awards. For me, shock theater. But here I am again, giving out the Oscars and smiling. I'm something new, a method loser. (laughs) No, I'm a two-time loser. This year, not only wasn't I nominated on Hollywood Boulevard, they just put a manhole cover over my star. (laughs) But my agent said, don't worry about not getting an Oscar this time. Remember, you're still young. (laughs) That's the good thing about having a 95-year-old agent. (laughs) West Side Story is about teenagers who carve each other up with switchblades. It's the best musical of the year. (laughs) It's the first time I ever saw a gang war and came out whistling the tunes. (laughs) Now, this past year, motion pictures got more and more mature. Today, children go into a theater and see things they used to get their faces slapped for asking about. (laughs) Let's start making the awards so I can have some new people to be bitter about.
2: The 34th Academy Awards were held on April 9, 1962 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Santa Monica, California. The event was hosted by Bob Hope for the 13th time. The most memorable event of the night actually came from Stan Berman, a New York City cab driver who awarded Bob Hope with a homemade Oscar after he slipped through security and made his way to the stage. Let's listen to a little bit of that.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm the world's greatest gate crasher, and I just came here to present Bob Hope with his 1938 trophy. Here you, all, Bob. <laughs> Stan Burmer. <laughs> this is for Bob. We'll get to him. <laughs> Who needs Price Waterhouse? <laughs> We need a doorman.
1: Academy Honorary Awards. The Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award went to George seaton The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to Stanley Kramer. And Honorary Awards went to William L. Hendricks for his outstanding patriotic service in the conception of writing and production of the Marine Corps film, A Force in Readiness, which has brought honor to the Academy and the motion picture industry. Another one went to Fred L. Metzler for his dedication and outstanding service to the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences. And another honorary award went to Jerome Robbins for his brilliant achievements in the art of choreography on film. So we have two honorary awards I want to point out. One for Jerome Robbins, who was a co-director for West Side Story, who was ceremoniously fired because, let's be honest, he wasn't being a great director. He was falling behind schedule and getting over the budget and all that. And then another one went to the Irving G. Tholiver award went to Stanley Kramer, who produced and directed Judgment and Nuremberg. Um, Both movies received 11 nominations that
2: year. So just want to put that in your heads as we are talking about the 34th Academy Awards. Best special effects went to the guns of Navarone visual effects by Bill Warrington audible effects by Vivian C. Greenham. Best Film Editing went to West Side Story to Thomas
1: Stanford. This is Stanford's only Career Academy Award win and nomination, and this film was ranked as the 38th Best Edited Film by the Motion Picture Editors Guild in June 2012. Uh, We talked about this a little bit during our discussion. Film editing, very unique, very original, very experimental, and uh, I, I think it's what makes the 61 movie shine.
2: Uh, in my opinion. Absolutely. There's such wonderful transitions here and they they feel very new and, and kind of of the 60s, but they feel so fresh from everything that we've seen beforehand. And I just want to shout out the Parent Trap. The fact that the Parent Trap was nominated for anything is just... The fact that this came out the same year as the Parent Trap kind of blows my mind as well. So just a shout out to the Parent Trap. Best costume design color goes to Irene Sharaf for The West Side Story. This is Sharaf's third of five total Academy Awards, and she was also the original costume designer for the stage version of the West Side Story. So I think we talked a little bit about the costume design. Uh, I I enjoyed the primary colors. I feel like it's of the time, the 60s musical. uh, We're getting into these kind of like bright, colorful musicals. It, It identifies the sharks and the jets. I think it's done very well. I think when we look back at it now and even how much I compared it to the new remake how subtle the new the remake has such subtle colors but i just think it's of the time it's of the era i think it, it fits perfectly for how bright and colorful the movie is and yeah damn cool cool i love how the sharks have a, a lot of that purple yeah like when they go to the dance they have the purple suits and the purple ties i love that
1: yeah the the color the color between the jets and the sharks is incredibly important because again it differentiates the two there's reds purples is like fire energy for the sharks and then for the jets it's muted a little you know there's some like yellows and browns and this in version. blue yeah yeah well and blues in the in the more the spielberg version but also that's iconic and the other iconic thing that you have to have in any west side story is the white dress with the red ribbon around it for maria so mm, two very yeah. important elements moving on to best costume design black and white this one went to la dolce vita to piero girardi this is girardi's first of two academy awards and he would go on
2: to win for Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half from 1963. Best Cinematography Color went to Daniel L. Fapp for West Side Story. This is Fapp's only career win, and he was nominated for Desire Under the Elms in 1958, The Five Pennies, One, Two, Three, The Unsinkable Molly Brown, Ice Station Zebra, and Marooned in 1969. So we talked a little bit about West Side Story's amazing cinematography. We didn't go too deep into Daniel L. Fapp, but what a wonderful, it's just a beautiful film. And the, the, the combination of the choreography, the the blocking, and the direction perfectly aligning with this amazing cinematography. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It feels there's a lot of movement. There's, there's so much energy to the actual cinematography behind West Side Story. It's absolutely worthy. Best cinematography, Black and White, went to The Hustler to Eugene Shoufton
1: is Shuftan's only career Oscar win. So Shuftan invented the Shuftan process, which is a special effects technique that employed mirrors to insert actors into miniature sets. One of the early uses of the process was for Metropolis from 1927, a Fritz Lang film. The technique was widely used throughout the first half of the 20th century until it was supplanted by the traveling
2: mat and blue screen techniques. Best Art Direction Color went to West Side Story. Art Direction by Boris Levin. Set Direction by Victor A. Ganglin. This is Levin and Ganglin's only Academy Award win. Ben, is there anything that you would like to add? We talked a lot about the look of the film. Not too detailed of the sets and the art direction, but what did you think about West Side Story's art direction?
1: Yeah, I, I mentioned a little bit before, and again, like I just love the details in the background. I love the graffiti. I think that the the sets like all really work together brings the musical to life and adds more to the backgrounds of it so i i liked it i liked that they used real you know places in new york to dance on uh, which supposedly was murderous for a lot of the a lot of the company because they their knees were getting screwed up their you know they were wearing through shoes uh, supposedly jerome robbins really put
2: them through the process from having to dance on real sets or real places versus just a stage City streets, yeah. I think it goes a long way. I mean, you can see from time to time when it becomes a set, but I think it went a long way to not, you know, make it like an American in Paris and just lock us down in a set that you know is not a real city. You know, I think it it did a lot to build and ground the world that we uh, see here.
1: They weren't in Paris?
2: Oh, shit, really? (laughs) Moving on, best art direction black and white went to
1: The Hustler, art direction by Harry Horner and set decoration by Gene Callahan
2: best sound went to west side story gordon e sawyer and fred hines this is sawyer's third and final academy award as he previously won for the bishop's wife in 1947 and the alamo just last year in 1960 this is hines fourth of five total academy awards including the previous wins for oklahoma in 1955 the south pacific in 1958 and the alamo the Gordon E. Sawyer Award is an honorary award given by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences to an individual in the motion picture industry whose technical contributions have brought credit to the industry. The award is named in honor of Gordon E. Sawyer, the former sound director at Samuel Golden Studio and three time Academy Award winner who claimed that a listing of past Academy Award arranged both chronologically and by the category, and by category, represents a history of the development of motion pictures. It was first presented at the 54th Academy Awards in April 1982. The Gordon E. Sawyer Award is voted upon and given by the Scientific and Technical Awards Committee of the Academy. So Gordon E. Sawyer here made such big impact that they eventually made an award for him. And it was first premiered in 1982 at the 54th Academy Awards. So... Such a big, astonishing achievement. I mean, there's not many people that get an award named after them, let alone an Academy Award. What a, wasn't a great achievement?
1: Yeah, it's huge, and I think we have to thank uh, thank him for the idea of telling the Academy, "Hey, you should probably like record all of this and like document <laughs> a lot of this stuff for people like us who are really into it." Moving on to Best Song, went to Moon River from Breakfast at Tiffany's, music by Henry Mancini. Lyrics by Johnny Mercer. Mercer and Mancini wrote the song for Audrey Hepburn to sing in Breakfast at Tiffany's. The lyrics, written by Mercer, are reminiscent of his childhood in Savannah, Georgia, including its waterways. As a child, he had picked huckleberries in summer and he connected them with a carefree childhood and Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. Although an instrumental version is played over the film's opening titles, the lyrics are first heard in a scene where Paul, quote, Fred Varjak, played by George Peppard, Discovery's Holly, Golightly, Hepburn, singing the song, accompanying herself on, on the guitar while sitting on the fire escape outside their apartments. There was an eruption of behind-the-scenes consternation when a Paramount Pictures executive, Martin Rackin, suggested removing the song from the film after a tepid Los Angeles preview. Hepburn's reaction was described by Mancini and others in degrees varying from her saying, Over my dead body, to her using more colorful language to make the same point. So let's listen to Moon River.
0: Wherever you're going,
1: I'm going... So Moon River, John, are you? have you seen Breakfast at Tiffany's? I don't know if I've ever asked you that question.
2: Yeah, I have. Uh, Moon River is its such a weird song, especially to win for that film. I mean, when we, we're just talking about a musical filled with great songs. And I'm curious what you think is the best song and what you think should have been nominated or even won best song in particular I mean, Moon River is a beautiful song. It absolutely is really gorgeous. It's just kind of, it feels off that none of the music from West Side Story would win Best Song. Well, that's kind of like the, like
1: it, it happens because it's based off of already existing source material where like this stuff is, the best that's song right. is supposed to be like original material made right. for the movie. Yeah. So that's why, I mean, yeah, I would have loved if Maria or Tonight had been like nominated that's for right. it, but i love moon river and i like breakfast tiffany's it's funny that we talk about race and and why it's so bad that what they did in west side story because it's it it almost seems like okay versus what they do with mickey rooney in
2: breakfast tiffany's which is portraying an asian man right it is
1: so offensive it's so offensive. I don't think I've seen anything as offensive as that. I mean, I've seen pretty offensive things, but that is one of the most offensive things I've ever seen in a movie. So it kind of takes away a little bit from Brooks of Tiffany's for me, but that song is, it's very beautiful. And um, it's a movie that I think I got to like watch again to appreciate more, but I think I'll skip through the Mickey Rooney parts.
2: Best scoring of a musical picture goes to West Side Story, Saul Chaplin, Johnny Green, Sid Raymond, and Erin Costol. This is Chaplin's third and final Academy Award, and he won previously for an American in Paris and seven brides for seven brothers. This is Johnny Green's third or fourth Academy Awards, and he won for Easter Parade and American in Paris. This is Costol's first of two Academy Awards and Raymond's only Academy Award win. So as Ben mentioned, thank you for pointing that out. You can't qualify if it's not original music or it's not an original song. So here we have the actual winning for best musical score in a motion picture. Is there anything else to add to the music? We've almost talked about every music number at this point. It's it's just iconic music.
1: And Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim were originators of the lyrics and, and music itself. And I think I read somewhere that they weren't a huge fan of the movie soundtrack because it it's so much they add to the orchestration of it that they actually like more the minimal approach they would do for the musical on stage but moving on to best music score of a dramatic or comedy picture this one went to breakfast at tiffany's to henry mancini so this is now mancini's second oscar of the evening and he would actually go on to win two more awards for best original song in 1962 and best original score in 1982. Uh Mancini, he was nominated for 72 Grammy Awards and he won twenty. He was nominated for 18 Academy Awards and he won the four. And he also won a Golden Globe Award. But and he was nominated for two Emmys. So he was this close to getting his egot He was an EOA.
2: Best short subject cartoon went to Surrogate. Best live action short subject went to Seawords, The Great Ships. Best documentary short subject went to Project Hope. Best Documentary Feature went to Sky Above and Mud Beneath. Best Foreign Language Film went to Through a Glass Darkly from Sweden. And this is Igmar Bergman's second consecutive Best Foreign Language Film win after he won for The Virgin Spring in 1960. He would go on to win in the same category for Fanny and Alexander in 1983. Best Story and Screenplay written directly for the screen went to
1: Splendor in the Grass. William, by- William Ainge. This is Ainge's first and only
2: nomination and win. Best screenplay based on a material from another medium went to Abby Mann for Judgment at Nuremberg. This is Mann's first and only Academy Award win. And Judgment at Nuremberg was a film based on a television play written by Abby Mann that also featured Maximilian Schell in the same role. The original television play aired in 1959 on April 16th. And in his acceptance speech, he said, "A writer worth his salt at all has an obligation not only to entertain but to comment on the world in which he lives." Judgment at Nuremberg.
1: So I, I've always wanted to watch Judgment at Nuremberg, and I was like, "Okay, this is a perfect time to watch it because we're gonna be comparing it or at least talking about it." And I was shocked that that movie did not get more love, and and it's gotten a lot of attention just because I've heard about it, but also maybe because as a Jewish person who has looked into or has learned about the Holocaust, like, to know about these movies about the Holocaust and the repercussions of it afterwards. So, like, to watch then Judgment of Nuremberg, I was just so floored by how how great of a movie it was, the subject matter, the writing of it, the way it was shot, the way it's style It's so good. And so what's the story? Give me, like, a logline of what Judgment of Nuremberg is. The, it's about... It's not necessarily Nazis, but people who were involved in the Nazi government who are put on trial for their actions during World War II and the Holocaust. So it becomes what what's really happening is the American government in the world is kind of is condemning Germany, and this 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 happened, and they're going after them through trials. And Maximilian Schell, who we'll we'll talk about in a, in a few minutes, who plays the German lawyer who's you know defending the. The Germans that are on trial, the whole crux of it is, well, were they just following orders or did they actually believe in what was happening? And I don't really want to say more than that because it's, there's so, it's so fascinating. The performances are, are gripping and and we will talk about that in in a few minutes and just the screenplay itself. It is, it is so much depth in the words, the dialogue, like it's so, it's so good. And I would, I think it's I think it's a very important movie. I think that it's a movie uh, that I wish that I' watched earlier and I wish I had more time to see it like over and over again because I think it's it it holds this weight that i i there are some movies that I think are very important to cinema, and this is a movie right now like to me that I think is so important to cinema, and I don't think we really appreciate it for what it is and as much as I love West Side Story this movie certainly deserved the screenplay award and probably more awards than it should have. The fact that it was nominated 11 times and this is only its first award from that evening for best, uh, screenplay best on another medium is, is fascinating. So I don't know if it's the world kind of hiding behind the, the lights and the colors of West side story and not willing to accept some of the horrors and atrocities that get unearthed in, in uh judgment at Nuremberg. So, um, I'll leave it at that. I, I love that movie. So I, I think that we'll get there. We'll get there when we talk about Best Picture. Moving on to Best Supporting Actress. This one went to Rita Marino for West Side Story. So this is Marino's only Academy Award win and nomination. In 1978, Marino earned her Primetime Emmy Award for the Rockford Files, cementing her status as an EGOT winner. She also has a triple crown of acting with competitive wins for acting for an Oscar, Tony, and Emmy. Marino is the first Hispanic actor to win the Triple Crown and is one of only two Triple Crown winners who have also achieved EGOT status. After winning the Oscar, Marino thought she would be able to continue to perform less stereotypical roles that she had been performing previously, but she was disappointed. She would say, I showed them I didn't make another movie for seven years after winning the Oscar. Before West Side Story, I was always offered the stereotypical Latina roles the Conchitas and Lolitas and Westerns. I was always barefoot. It was humiliating, embarrassing stuff, but I did it because there was nothing else. After West Side Story, it was pretty much the same thing, just a lot of gang stories. So she obviously had a lot of struggles for after her performance, and even though she won, there's still clearly a lot of the racism that still existed within Hollywood. And just one final note I wanted to say about The character of anita and this is now my favorite oscar metric oscar stat out of everything so there are three characters in film history that have earned actors that have earned two actors academy awards based on their performances of them so we have vito corleone marlon brando and robert de niro each won oscars portraying vito corleone we have joker the joker character that was performed by heath ledger and joaquin phoenix that they each won their oscars and now because of this past Academy Awards ceremony, Anita from West Side Story is part of the, those characters because her, Rita Moreno and Ariana Du Bois both won for Best Supporting Actress. So it's, I think it's just a fascinating stat to include those three characters within that kind of accolade. So definitely, I, I like Rita Moreno's performance, but if I have to say, John, Judy Garland
2: should have won for judgment at Nuremberg. But let's move on to Best Supporting Actor. I want to take back before we move on I said Rita Moreno gives a bad performance in this movie. I shouldn't have said that. I was heated in the moment, okay? <laughs> I'm retrospectively taking that back. It's not a bad performance. I was just very different. Very disappointed in the performance leading up to a boy like that. It just it just felt and that's probably bad direction to be honest. Like she she just is very stone cold and it doesn't seem like she's grieving over her boyfriend at all. Until you get to the song, so she does give a great performance. Otherwise, I think throughout the movie, and I didn't really talk about Anita's attack scene, but yeah, that it's it's really tragic and it's horrifying that she had to like go through that again and and kind of perform that while trying to remember all the previous horrors that she had to go through. But you know, it is a really touching and important role in this film, and it's and it's an important monument for Oscar history that uh, she won this award, and then the fact that she's an egot winner, and then the fact that she would come back again. To play in the remake as a different character entirely was, I mean, it's kind of magical. Like, there's not many moments in film where you get something like that happening, which is really, really, really cool. But, like you said, moving on to Best Supporting Actor. Best Supporting Actor went to George Chakiris from West Side Story. Frustrated with the progress of his career, Chakiris left Hollywood for New York. West Side Story had been running for a year on Broadway, and Chakiris auditioned for Jerome Robbins he was cast in the London production as Riff, leader of the Jets. The musical launched on the West End in late 1958, and Shakiris received excellent reviews, playing it for almost 22 months in a row. The Mirisch brothers bought the film rights to the West Side Story and tested Shakiris. They thought his dark complexion made him more ideal for the role of Bernardo, leader of the Sharks, and cast Russ Tamblyn as Riff. This was the fourth film to win both the Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress Oscar for George Jacaris and Rita Moreno, respectively. Previous films to accomplish this feat are Streetcar Named Desire, From Here to Eternity, and Sayonara. Films who went on to do that would be The Last Picture Show, Julia, Hannah and Her Sisters, and The Fighter. So I, it's so interesting that he got to play such an opposing role that what he actually would come to, to know Jacaris in this film playing... You know Bernardo, who is such like a opposing character to Riff, and to think about how for two years straight he played the character as Riff, and then had to go against him. Also horrifying again that because he had a dark complexion, that they were like, let's make this guy the leader of the Puerto Ricans. Yep. Like what? <laughs> it's is just. It is just absolutely insane. They're like, no, let's not cast him as the person that he literally played for two months, and that he could literally read the lines in his sleep. They're like, let's ch- challenge this guy and see if he can learn the entire opposite role, basically. Yeah, and but he still he does a great job with it. And
1: I I struggle with like this win because I like Judgment of Nuremberg so much, and Montgomery Clift got nomination for his appearance in the movie, um, but Burt Lancaster in Judgment of Nuremberg. He should have been nominated as well. Um, so it would have been interesting if we had... Wow, that's a stacked cast. Oh, my God. Oh, dude, the, the cast <laughs> in Judgment of Nuremberg makes you, like, it, it drops your mouth when you see it. And then you see wow not only what they look like, but then their acting performances, you're just like, my God. Anyways, I digress. Let's move on to Best Actress. This one went to Sophia Loren for Two Women. This is Loren's only career win out of two nominations. She would go on to be nominated for Marriage Italian Style in 1964, and she received an Honorary Academy Award in 1991 for her lifetime achievements. Sophia Loren became the first thespian to win an acting Oscar for a non-English speaking role, as well as only the seventh person ever to win the Best Actress for a film with a single nomination, a feat that would not occur again until 1989 when Jodie Foster won Best Actress for her performance in The Accused. So I watched two women in preparation for this episode and Sophia Loren knocks it out of the park. She's great. It's, uh, it's an Italian movie. It's another world war II movie actually, um, about Italians who had to flee, uh, from Rome and then coming back and, and the repercussions of what happens after the war. She's great. She's really great in this movie. Um, I am not shocked that she won for this. It's, it's great to have a non-English speaker winning this award, uh, cause it shows how, global cinema is and how global the academy awards are so yeah i would definitely recommend seeing sophia loren two women i think it's on amazon and it's only like an hour and a half so you know not that much time
2: you have to spend watching it best actor went to maximilian Schell for judgment at nuremberg this is shell's only academy award win and he was nominated for best actor for the man in the glass booth in 1975 and best supporting actor for julia in 1977 Schell was also nominated for Best Foreign Language Film as director of Erst Lieb in 1970 and The Pedestrian in 1973, which was the first win for a German-speaking actor since World War II. Biographer James Curtis notes that Schell prepared for his part in the movie by reading the entire 40-volume record of the Nuremberg Trials. Author Barry Manoch describes the impact of Schell's acting, again on the big screen, he was nothing short of electrifying as the counselor whose determination to place the blame for the holocaust on anyone but his clients and brings morality into question so we have a huge win ben you've seen the movie i haven't is this a worthy win oh yeah yeah this is a
1: <laughs> yeah i mean the as you're saying before how it's described as electric like he is electric in this movie and he plays a character who he's a the German lawyer, you know, defending the Nazis that get put on trial. And so you can imagine like the, the depth and, and the conflict that he would have to bring to that role and that character. And it is so, it's so provocative and so effective that you really can't help it when he goes, when he goes on these like huge monologues and, and speeches and he, and he's in this trial arguing, it is, it's riveting. And it, And it, it it makes you think like about the, about the Nuremberg trials and, you know, I, I think all Nazis should have been condemned, but it's what he, the morality questions that he brings forth, it's fascinating. And he is so good in this role. Like you can't help, like as soon as he gets on screen and as soon as he starts speaking, you're like, oh, this is a good performance. You can, you can tell almost instantly uh, from it. So Absolutely deserved a win for Maximilian Schell and Spencer Tracy, who was also in *Judgment at Nuremberg*, was nominated in this character in That's this category. That's crazy, and he was
2: he was just as good. <laughs> I just didn't think they could be more stacked than it already is. That's absolutely insane. Oh yeah, Best Director went to
1: Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins for *West Side Story*. This is the first film to win a Best Director Oscar for two directors. This would not happen again until 46 years later, when Joel Cohen and Ethan okay. Cohen shared the award for No Country for Old Men in 2007. So as we said, Jerome Robbins was fired from the production because he was going over budget. He was taking too many takes. He was really working the actors to the bones. And they were like, nope, this is not going to work. You're not a traditional uh, film director. I think this is the it's the only film that he ever directed. So the fact that like his only film that he directed, he won the Oscar for is a feat in and of itself. And Robert Wise, he would go on to have a career. He um, would also work on the sound of music. So he he had a pretty successful career. And it's uh, again, like I, I feel like I have to challenge this again because we, you kind of mentioned it before about like how some of the direction is like not great, you know? And it's like, it, it basically ask that question is like, is it because the musical is so good that you don't like it? Like that's what drives it and that the popularity of it, like obviously Spielberg in the 2021 remake did a phenomenal job with it. But he didn't win an Oscar for it, but these guys did. And I just it, it's it's fascinating uh, that they were going to win, especially considering the turmoil and the fact that one of them was just completely cut out of the production entirely because he was doing too much.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I think it's more of just the feat that they pulled it off, that they had all the choreography and the the singing, and I imagine just how difficult it was probably to, like, sync up everyone's voices. Everyone's not even uh, singing for the most part except for a couple of characters in the film. So I think it's just an overall credit to how the film looked, how everything came together. Clearly, people loved most of the performance here except for Maria and Tony. So I think it makes sense in terms of what... uh, what we've seen so far and just how much people love the film. Now whether Judgment at Nuremberg is is better directed, it sounds like there's hell of performances in that in that film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the nominees for Best Motion Picture of nineteen sixty one are Judgment at Nuremberg, The Hustler, The Guns of Navarone, Fanny and the winner of the best motion picture went to Robert Weiss for West Side Story. With its win of 10 Academy Awards, this became the biggest Oscar-winning musical of all time, beating the record Gigi set three years before with its nine Oscars. It is the only movie winning exactly 10 Academy Awards. No other movie has 10 Academy Awards, although Ben-Hur, Titanic, and The Lord of the Rings' Return of the King have won 11 Academy Awards. Yeah, so the fact that and when i saw that stat i was like wait really and
1: i looked it up and i was like yeah there there have been movies that have won nine eight and et cetera but ten like so the fact that west side story was so close to that number 11 that we've talked about before and guess what it missed out on john do you remember best screenplay it lost to judgment nuremberg so it's it's fascinating um so let's jump into some stats and figures first so first uh, West Side Story has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average Rotten Tomatoes rating of 8.38. Top critic percentage gives it a 90 of an average rating of 8.8. The audience score percentage is an 84% with a 4.14 out of 5. IMDb, it is a 7.5. Metacritic gives it an 86. And again, it won 10 Academy Awards out of 11 nominations. So, John, is. West Side
2: Story worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1961. I haven't seen Judgment of Nuremberg, so I got to get to that. Maybe my opinion will change over time. I gave West Side Story an 82, and I do think it's worthy. I think we have a kind of bright electric film. I think this is very hard to pull off definitely for the time. I think it's, it's you know, it is really electrifying. While I don't think the performances are the greatest, I think they can definitely be improved. I think we see that from the remake, as I pointed out. But I really enjoy this movie. I mean, I love the editing, the transitions, and just the style of this film. It's so well choreographed and, and posed and pictured. I think you could honestly study the opening and just study every frame of how well choreographed it is and how well timed it is and how well the just the movement and the pacing of the opening and even just the introduction to the film overall showing us further into New York City I was actually stunned by it I was absolutely amazed and I started the podcast talking about a movie that I was forced to watch and that kind of puts a sort of hatred on it you know and and something that kind of sticks with you and I went into watching this movie for a second time kind of like dreading it knowing how I felt when I was in a middle school way back in the day and I came out being like this is a, a stunning movie it's so well made technically and, and really really charming you know when it comes to a love story where it's love at first sight and and how it kind of all falls apart it's it's really tragic in a really touching way that obviously comes straight from Romeo and Juliet. So I absolutely do think it's worthy. I think it's definitely a feat in film. It's it's a really an astonishing feat how they kind of brought this all together and and made it really really touching. Yeah, so I am uh I'm going to give it a worthy rating as well.
1: I I gave it an 85. So maybe not the most solid rating that I've given before, but this movie from all the technical aspects in it, it knocks it out of the park. Cinematography and editing number one. Like the like those are the top two things about the movie itself. The lighting design is great. The costumes are really good. So it, again, like it deserves all these technical awards that it won for. Now, when it comes to the acting itself, I really I really don't think it's that anything special. You know, I think Rita Marino and George Kiris are fine, but do they deserve Oscars? Eh, maybe not. I mean they, they're fine and I but again like Richard Boehmer and Natalie Wood were like, What the fuck? Leah, like when you like when there's the singing, it was great. I loved it. But when it came to the actual talking, I just it just wasn't for me. And and I, I don't know. I just think that when we compare it to so many other movies that we watch, it doesn't really hold up, especially in some of the musicals that we have and will see. It's just some of not this is not really my favorite acting. Um the choreography is really great and, and it's powerful, it it's evocative. And I just overall the movie like i feel like you really can't go wrong because west side story like the musical is so good like the musical might be one of the best musicals made ever so it's kind of hard like you have to really fuck it up (laughs) to like you know to to make it a bad movie so it's a very good movie i think that it it captures the essence and the fun of it. it it captured it gave everyone access to it and it's exactly what people want to go to the movies for, which is to have fun, be entertained, cry a little, laugh a little, and uh it, it has it all there and be it and to be entertained. Saying all that though, if I had a vote, I would have voted for Judgment at Nuremberg. And it's and I, you know, it's one of these movies that I think that is is so like important and it raises up such morality and the screenwriting is so good the acting is the acting is like hauntingly good. Uh that I uh, I I like I would have voted for it, and I and I get it. I get why like Academy of voters wouldn't go for it, and it's and I think about like what would have happened today. And the perfect example of that is, and we we reference it a lot, the Lala La Land and Moonlight comparison and fiasco, Lala La Land being West Side Story, Judgment of Nuremberg being Moonlight. I feel like if it was today in, in today's world, I feel like Judgment of Nuremberg would have won. It would have won because of the morality, because of the issues that it brings up, because it's so heavy with emotion and drama. That how can you not award to that? Like that's what kind of Moonlight did with Lala La Land. Lala La Land is great; it has the fun, the energy, the dancing, the stars. It's it has it all. But then when you look at Moonlight, it's like wow, Moonlight captures so much of the issues that that black men, specifically gay black men, face, uh, and even just what black People face in their communities, you know, throughout America, and it's uh, you know, the the it's just this social issue movie that is fantastic, and that's what Judgment in Nuremberg is, and it goes beyond just social; it goes into the psyche and and everyone's thoughts and feelings about the Holocaust after. Um, so I don't want to spoil too much for John, but I really would encourage John, you should watch it. I Encourage a lot of people to go see it. I think, especially for jews in america and in the world i think it's a very important movie to watch because not just because it kind of is like oh well were the nazis to blame? that's not really the point of it it's the fact that it it is so it became the people's like really the first glimpse into what the nazis did and truly understanding it the nuremberg at the nuremberg trial so to have a movie version of that is fascinating and, and it brings up all these questions for a lot of things. So that's my little diatribe about Judgment Nuremberg, but West Side Story. It's phenomenal. It it deserves the Academy Award. It it's so it's worthy. But I I just would have voted differently. So, John, currently your rating thirty four movies is a seventy two point nine, and mine is a seventy five point eight. Even your one hundred for the apartment doesn't doesn't bring you past me yet. <laughs> so um, I that's it. I I feel like a West Side Story. I re, do you want to sing? I really wanted to sing with you, but if you don't want to sing, I get it. It's fine. What song you want to sing? I mean, we could sing "I Feel Pretty" if you want to. <laughs> Come on, John. I feel pretty. Oh, right, so, so I pretty. need to pull up the lyrics here. <laughs> I feel pretty and with- I got to pull it up too. All right, and gay. It's the best part. <laughs> And I pity any girl who isn't me today. I feel charming. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so charming. It's alarming how charming I feel. And so pretty that I can hardly believe I'm real. John, don't you see that pretty girl in the mirror there? Who can that attractive girl be? (laughs) Such a pretty face, such a pretty dress, such a pretty smile, such a pretty, pretty me. (laughs) I feel stunning (laughs) and enhancing. Feel like running and dancing for joy,
2: for I'm loved by a pretty, wonderful (laughs) boy. i berm to worm baby
1: i <laughs> wasn't even included in the movie <laughs> all right well
2: it wasn't the remake baby yeah, sperm well, to worm sperm to worm
1: all right i think we we've done it west side story worthy podcast i'm
2: ben and i'm john and, and this, this is worthy, worthy.
1: A miracle would I know now I was right. For here you are And what was just a world is a Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every best picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcast. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter, at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthy submissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthy submissions at gmail.com. Ten it is Sperm, spar memoir.